to the Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing, hosted by Wayne Courageous III, a place where active and passive investors come to hear the good, bad, and ugly of real estate investing. Our guests consist of experienced operators and investors who want others to succeed by sharing their stories. If you're looking to syndicate deals or grow your wealth passively in real estate, you've come to the right show. It's now time to sit back, take mental notes, and enjoy our next episode of The Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. Welcome to The Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. This is your host, Wayne Courageous. Today, I'm excited to have Ethan Gal, who's owned several rental properties, has made over 300 private loans secured by real estate, and invested in over 100 single-family fix and flip projects. He is a general partner on multiple commercial and multifamily projects totaling over 1,500 units. His primary role on deals is loan guarantor, key principal, or gap funder, i.e. where the sponsorship team has raised about 70% of their limited partnership equity, but does not have enough time to raise the remainder. Ethan will come in and lend that remainder to the team so the deal can get done on time. He has invested in hotels, self-storage, office buildings, medical offices, and retail, in addition to single-family and multifamily deals. Ethan graduated from Cornell University with a BA in economics in 2003, at the age of 19, and from Columbia Law School in 2006 at the age of 22. He worked on a billion-dollar mergers and acquisitions for several years on Wall Street in financial institutions before transitioning to being a professional investor and entrepreneur in 2016. He lives in Houston, Texas with his wife, who he met the first day of class at Cornell in 2000, and their five children. Welcome to our show, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me, Wayne. And uh, a full disclosure, I am a loan guarantor on your deal. Yes, I was going to say, it's special because I always love having partners um, on our deals, you know, participate in our podcast. And, um, you know, you've come over to our place and uh, I've got to meet all your children and everybody. You've got a beautiful family. So uh, excited to have you on our show. And and really, I have a lot to learn uh, and I know our audience will as well. So to start, uh, Ethan, how did you get into real estate investing? You know, your background in legal and, you know, New York, you know, so what guided you to real estate investing in general? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my wife and I had just super standard Wall Street type of career. So after I graduated from Columbia Law School in 2006, I entered into a phenomenally great job market where uh, I had like 15 offers from top law firms in the country, not because I was any good. I actually had to hide the fact that I was only 22 because that was actually not going to help me because who would want to hire a 22 year old and pay him 160k a year. Um, uh, so my wife worked in investment banking and uh, private equity. I worked at a big law firm doing Wall Street acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad I think when I was 23, one year into my job, and I threw it in the trash figuratively. I, I don't like to waste stuff. I wouldn't have thrown it in the trash, but but figuratively in my mind I threw it in the trash. I didn't understand it at all. I didn't care about cash flow. All I really understood was buy low, sell high. Uh, that's really all we did. Um, so after doing many, many years of that, um, uh, fast forward to 2014, 15 here in Houston, uh, we started having a lot of children and my wife uh, worked no longer worked outside the home. So the fact pattern was basically, you know, I was working 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 hours a week at my job. And my wife was, was with our one, two, three, four kids. Uh, we have five now, but, um, you know, we didn't have all five when uh, I was working there. 
So I would just always be frustrated at my actual job. It, it wasn't the worst place to work in the world. In many respects, it was actually a better job than some of the prior jobs I had. But it's just a tough place to work. For all the college football fans out there, working on Wall Street stuff is basically like playing in the SEC. Uh, it's too hard. Um, people really, tr- you know, it's all five stars and four stars running around trying really hard. Uh, it's not the easiest way of making money um, or winning a championship. So um, I just started Googling like stupid stuff like how do I not have to work here? So if I was at the office at 11 p.m. and I was frustrated one day, I would just Google like how do I not have to work here? So two two prompts came up. One was franchising and the other was real estate. I did some due diligence on franchising, talked to a bunch of franchise uh, uh, consultant types, read a lot of franchise disclosure documents, and I just basically concluded the ones that I was looking at were just terrible jobs that I'd have to pay for. And I was like, I already have a terrible job, and they pay me like 300 k a year. So why would I go buy a terrible job? So then I looked into real estate, and the thing that really attracted me to real estate was a lot of the gurus and a lot of the experts in real estate once they've done it for a while and they start masterminds or they start selling coaching, um, a lot of them would actually emphasize the fact that they were not good students or not good at corporate work or not, you know, they did not have money when they started. And I really like that. You know, it's probably a half truth, like with everything in marketing, you know, they can't say like, yeah, my dad gave me $5 million. You know, they can't say that. But there's there's a half truth to it. And I really liked it because I, I went home to my wife and I was like, look, this guy told me he's a moron and he didn't have any money and he's made it. I'm not a moron and I have millions of dollars already saved up like and I'm a lawyer. So I know the law. So I feel like I should enter it into this space and I don't have to be a guru. I don't have to be an expert, but I could just achieve a little bit of what this guy achieved. I think that sounds great. So that's how I started my real estate journey about nine years ago. And were you ever on the active, like true active side where you find the properties, you locate properties and and do the renovations? Or were you always uh, partnering with other people who were more the active side? Yeah, that's a great question. So I always stayed on the passive side for a couple of reasons. Number one, when I started, I still worked at that busy corporate job. So I didn't really have time to uh, find deals. So my job was to find operators that then I could lend money to or financially back and partner with. And then the other thing that I realized as I started doing it was, um, so I started in single family like a lot of people do. So single family fix and flip is a relatively tough hustle. To get deals, you either have to really have decent relationships with wholesalers or you need to go direct to seller. Uh, going direct to seller is something that uh, I think if somebody put a gun to my head or offered me a ton of money, I don't think I have the skill set to do. Um, distressed sellers are either crazy, uh, stupid, or a combination thereof. Uh, not really the type of people I have the easiest fit talking to, right? Um, and, and it's certainly not what I want to spend 12 hours of my day you know, talking to Billy Joe, who's, you know, mom died and the title is super complicated, but he's willing to sell it to me at 50 cents on the dollar later. It's too hard. So I've always been on more on the passive side, both in terms of skill set, uh, fit, as well as uh, time fit. Yeah. So how did you find these operators? Let's, let's start with single family, because that is the most common, the fix and flips, what everyone's watching on HDTV and such. So 
uh, how did you find those operators and where did you fit in the role of supporting that operator or that buyer to yeah. make the investment? Yeah, great question. So um, I met my first guy off of Bigger Pockets. His name is Chris, uh, still a guy. Uh, I like him and his wife a lot. We still talk on the phone and email, you know, every month or so. Uh, he was quitting his corporate job to become more of a full-time fix and flip guy. So I met him off of Bigger Pockets. Then we had a, a you know a meeting at Starbucks, and uh, my first deal was with him. And it was basically a uh, slower moving wholesale deal. So he had bought a house from somebody at 100 and he was selling it to somebody at 120, uh, somebody that he knew. So it wasn't just a random buyer. So he was confident that that person would close. Problem was um, that person, the buyer, didn't have the money to close until a couple weeks after Chris's contract ended and the seller was not willing to give him an extension. Hmm. So my first deal... Uh, was super easy. I got paid back within one to two weeks. I don't remember all the exact numbers, but after I did the math and I saw my IRR and how easy it was and how little I had to do, I was like, hey, Chris, we're going to do all of these, like every single one. He said, okay, great. And then we did 50 deals together, nice. uh, one relationship. And then uh, from that moment on, I decided, uh, I basically went to almost every networking event um, for like two, three years in a row. So I just went out into Houston all the time, went to these big meetup groups, took everybody's card, emailed them back, uh, met with more people. And then just, you know, just 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 the uh, the vagaries of networking. And then, uh, you know, that's something I never really learned in school. and I didn't really maximize when I was in school, unfortunately. But so many times, you know, somebody that I thought was just crazy or was not super intelligent would refer me somebody actually relevant. So yes. networking is always important and it doesn't really matter who you're talking to. Just make sure they understand what it is you do. You never know if they'll find somebody that's like a perfect fit for you. Yeah. And One thing you, met how you and I met Wayne, I mean, we met just from a random referral. Uh, some guy I talked to, I said, Hey, I want to be a loan guarantor. And he said, Oh, Hey, I know this guy, Wayne. Yeah, that's right. Um, and one of the things you had mentioned was bigger pockets and we haven't really talked about that on the show, but it's a great resource for anybody that's looking to get in real estate or network or just, you know, if you, if you are a beginner, even advanced, like it's a great uh, place, website to go to, to um, network and find education. So I think that's a great place where you started. And then networking is key. Every city has some type of real estate networking group. And if you don't know if you're going to go in single family, multifamily, whatever, it's still a good, good place to go and meet like-minded people. Uh, because to your point, uh, you know, there's always a good referral that may come from it. If you don't meet that right person or meet the person, um, that you know could help grow your business or or grow your education. I've met many wrong people that have referred me something relevant. Yeah. So, um, are you still doing the single family fix pieces, or are you going on? Have you gone on to another direction? I still have a small book of business for that with repeat borrowers and repeat clients that I'll still do business with. Typically, if I get a new client, I will refer them out to two or three friends that still specialize in it. Typically, sometimes if the deal makes sense and, you know, there's more opportunity with somebody, you know, we'll, we'll still do it. So, I mean, I was actually set up like a professional hard money lender for a while. Um, you know, this is kind of the secret sauce, but local hard money lenders all live and die by local bank credit lines. They're actually lending the bank's money fundamentally. Um, so I had all those things set up too back in the day. How are you seeing um, just on the single family side in today's market? Is it even more 
cautious about buying deals and, you know, doing the fix and flip uh, with higher interest rates and just things sitting on the market a little longer on the single family side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I don't, I don't deal with it too much anymore, but certainly, um, you know, single family is so driven by 30 year mortgage rates, basically that, uh, you know, things have really cooled down. Uh, one of the things I do, uh, I'm a fee attorney with a couple of different title companies. So, um, you know, I met with uh, my main contact at one of the title companies and she was like, yeah, it's, it's a lot slower now. You got any, uh, you got any additional business for us or, you know, what, what kind of marketing do you want to do? Um, they're, they're, um, deal flow has slowed dramatically. I mean, there's no, no one's going to refinance their 4% mortgage and go take an 8% mortgage now. Yeah. And then uh, just buys and sells are just lower. Transactions are fewer. You know, not only is the negotiation in the buyer's hands when they're dealing with the seller, but even going to a lender title, these other companies that, help close deals. I mean, inspections. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing to negotiate all these other services when you're buying a property. I, I was talking to one of our team members this week and she's buying a uh, her house, buying a new house in a couple of weeks. And she was surprised that her husband was able to negotiate the, the loan fees and such so aggressively than, you know, previous. So just interesting, you know, people don't think that uh, you can negotiate those type things, but it's it's slower um and everybody's yeah, it's, it's noticeably slower yeah. like you so, can't you, i mean but again you know most things can be negotiated but you can't go into costco and demand that the chicken be 4.99 or uh, you can't demand it be 4.98 sure but most other things are negotiated yeah there's inflation still going up so yeah um all right so let's switch to uh key principles so most of the audience uh, may not know what a kp uh especially if they're not uh, doing larger multifamily deals. So can you explain what a key principle is and um, how you fit that role on, on deals? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, a key principle slash loan guarantor is basically um, the way that the financing system is set up in, in the US. Uh, it seems like it's been this way for maybe at least two generations at this point is for in particular multifamily syndication or multifamily investing. Um, when we go buy an apartment building for $20 million and let's say we're able to get a loan for 14 million and we have to raise 6 million from our friends, family, associates, other people we know in order to make up that capital stack. So on that $14 million loan, the lender or the broker or the bank, um, you know, many of them are non-bank lenders, but we'll just refer to them as the bank generically. What they require is they require that the lead sponsor, so in this case, Wayne, some of his other business partners and me, they will require that the three of us have collective net worth that exceeds the loan amount. So we would have to have uh, 14 million net worth together at least. That is a little bit hard to value. So a lot of times for bank compliance, what they do is they say, look, anybody can just make up you know, their pool servicing companies worth a billion times EBITDA. Like we don't, we're not really in the market to figure out if it should be two times, three times, four times, you know, who cares? Just show us 10% of that liquid. So show us 10% of 14 million. So $1.4 million, show us that liquid because we believe that a you know normal person would generally have 10% liquidity and then we can test that objectively. You know, show us your bank statements, show us your brokerage accounts. In my case, I keep the vast majority of my liquidity in life insurance policies um, that I have a line of credit against. 
Um, so I showed that to the lenders and they say, okay, great. We checked the box on liquidity and we checked the box on net worth. We can proceed. Uh, sometimes they also have an experience checkbox as well, where they're like, you know, how many of these have you done? So I was really quickly able to sign on several deals in 2022. Now my schedule real estate owned is relatively long uh, for a variety of reasons. We'll get to the gap lending next. That's actually how I got a lot of other GP interests in deals across the country. Uh, so at this point, uh, generally, I'm going to pass almost every liquidity test. I'm going to pass almost most of the net worth tests. And I'll also pass the uh, experience tests. Yeah. yeah, I think this is, I always like to view, you know, in our business at CREI Partners as like, I'm sort of the quarterback of the deal. And you're finding people who can offset or make the team better to close, to win the game, to close the transaction. And so I remember, what was that? I don't know, almost eight months ago or so when we first met, you know, I was looking for someone like you to help bridge that gap from a net worth standpoint so we can secure that loan. And many people out there are in my shoes as well. Like we're, we don't have the entire net worth to close on a deal, but yet we've got to get it done. And so um, going back to what we were talking about with networking and bigger pockets, et cetera, you know, you find these relationships and you build trust and, you know, you're, an integral part of our team uh, and vice versa. And you have to trust too, Ethan, that the people that you're signing loans for are actually going to execute the deal. So I do want to shift to that really is how do you gauge whether the person is um, capable or competent enough to execute the deal that they present to you, especially yeah, because you're signing the loan and staying more passive. I mean, you, you've got to put a lot of trust in these people. Um, and so how do you de-risk that you know, risk for yourself? Yeah, phenomenal question. So um, I always underwrite the people on the team first. Uh, so I want to know where they come from, where they're going. Uh, generally, past track record is indicative of future results, unlike the stock market. And then also, um, if somebody doesn't have directly applicable track record, just looking at their track record in other things can be extrapolated towards how they behave so like in your case wayne uh you were you know i put you on the you know highest tier uh eagle scout u.s marine uh higher education with an mba and, and you worked at a real estate firm for a long time so super low and you've been with your wife for a long time you got three beautiful kids um, you know, super low probability you would be a guy that would do weird stuff or stupid stuff or fraudulent stuff. Um, you know, you're, you're not in the position where it even makes any sort of logical sense to do anything bad, right? Then there's other people, you know, maybe they've had a bankruptcy in the past. That's got to be explained. Maybe they're going through a really bad divorce at the time. Um, you know, maybe they've got some other factors going on so it's it's not it's not a science it's a mixture of an art and science of figuring out what the core essence of somebody is and then trying to extrapolate how will they behave in a tough situation are they going to do something horrible or are they gonna you know grind grind down and and do their best uh and what is the real risk that they'll do something um untoward or fraudulent or unethical and it's really just putting all of those factors in and assigning a probability to that and and, and moving forward yeah. One thing uh, last year I remember you doing is you did background checks too. Like, yep. you, you, you know, so those are things. And then just simple Google the person's name and seeing if anything pops up that 
you know, are red flags. You know, those are, those are things I learned last year, um, you know, personally, you know, building my team too. So, um, you know, those are all ways to get the comfort that that person is highly ethical. And I think the grit, you mentioned grit, and I think that is most, one of the most important things in, in real estate. It's not easy. It's a complete grind and there are good days and bad days. And ultimately, um, you know, you just, you just got to grind and, and, and have that grit to get through it. So uh, shifting a little gears, Ethan, on the loan piece. So there are two types of loans in the larger real estate markets, you know, non-recourse and recourse. Can you talk to us about those two? Um, and then which loans do you prefer? Um, and how does that help additionally de-risk, you know, an investment for you? Yeah, absolutely. So a full recourse loan means that uh, for whatever reason, if we lose a dollar or we lose whatever six million, you know, in our prior example, if uh, we bought a apartment building for 20 million and we sell it for 19.5 million, that means that we've lost all of our investors uh, money. In that case, there's still enough money to pay off the 16 or sorry, in that example, the 14 million dollar loan that we incurred. So we're all fine from that standpoint. We look really stupid and we've lost a bunch of investor money. So we should uh, probably uh, change our names, uh, move to a different city. I'm just joking. <laughs> we should just not be involved in real estate anymore. We're obviously not very good at what we do. We should just get a real job. Um, but in that case, the loan is still paid off. So there's no harm, no foul from the bank's perspective. They just say, who cares? Now, if we do a really terrible job or the market really shifts, and we sell that apartment building for 13 million. So we've so again, we've lost all the investor money. We got to go change our names, move to a different city, and we got to get out of real estate. Um, now we <clears throat> owe the bank a million dollars. So if it was a full recourse loan, that means the bank is gonna call me and say, Hey, Ethan, uh, remember that deal you did? Uh, give us a million dollars right now. And then I'm gonna either have to negotiate with them, I'm gonna have to pay them, they're gonna have to sue me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If it's a non-recourse loan, what they'll do is the lender will go look at kind of our loan application, try to see if we said anything incorrect or uh, we made any misrepresentations, and then just see how we operated the thing. If it's just because the Fed raised interest rates way too fast, like they just bump up prime to 20%, right? So basically, everybody fails. It's not because we were really bad at what we do. It's just... The, the market shifted so much in a way that was impossible to predict. In that case, uh, what it's not our fault, we did not engage in fraud. We did not engage in misrepresentation. We didn't commingle funds. You know, we didn't do the parade of horrible things. Uh, in theory, what it means is we just give the keys back to the bank and then we move on. And and potentially, um, we're not going to qualify for, for loans for a while. One of the questions they're going to ask is, hey, did you ever have a foreclosure or did you ever do a deed in lieu? And the answer to that would have been yes. So one is obviously much safer than the other, right? One is literally the bank can call you and say, hey, pay me a million dollars right now versus the other, which is, you know, if you didn't engage in fraud, it's just kind of everybody moves on. Do you have a comfort level? Which one? Obviously, non-recourse is the comfort level. But have you done any recourse loans? I mean, for me personally, I just, you know, I've try to stay away from recourse as much as I can. Uh, and I'm not participating in any recourse loans at, at the moment. Uh, not to say I won't in the future, but you know, what are your thoughts um, on either one? I've done both. So I have about a, like a 25% of the loans I'm on are recourse. The other 75 are non-recourse. Obviously non-recourse 
is preferred, but um, one of the, one of my partners here in Houston, he lives like 15 minutes away from me. He does industrial deals. Uh, we basically just buy land and then we put truck parking on it. Uh, our deals are relatively small and truck parking is not like, I don't really think it's an asset class. It's a subclass of a subclass. Um, so we can't really find institutional lenders for that. So we've gone to with a local bank and our local bank, you know, they don't really care if I'm Bill Gates or Elon Musk. I have to sign personally for it. Now, as we do bigger deals in that sector, uh, we might be able to get better uh, uh, funding. Uh, but right now that's a full recourse loan. And then one of the first deals I signed on was with a personal friend of mine that I've known for a while. Uh, she's had a very small deal. Uh, we used the credit union. Our interest rate was phenomenal. So you, usually in full recourse loans, you'll get a better interest rate. True. Yeah. And that credit union, uh, that's a, you know, a great place, um, even on multifamily too, to, you know, see if there's a better rate. Right. That way. But to your point, it's maybe a higher risk on the buyer if they're doing a, a recourse loan, but you know, it may help the cash flow a little bit better if, uh, if you have that lower rate. So uh, one of the things I've heard, and I'm hoping you can just uh, just clarify for me, because what I have heard, especially on Fannie and Freddie loans, is if the key principal signs over and over and over on all these deals, that at some point there's a red flag on the bank or Fannie and Freddie. Have you uh, experienced that since you've definitely accelerated your partnership uh, in this capacity with people? Um, you know, does, yeah, it, so does it ever have to cap out where the lenders are like, uh, you're on too many deals at once? Yeah. Um, so I don't have quite direct experience with this, but I have a lot of anecdotal evidence from other people that I know really well. So uh, one group is a mortgage brokerage company that they went to Columbia University, just like I did at a different time. They're younger than me. They actually told me a story. So they're they're in the debt marketplace all the time, brokering loans. They said they were a, they were a little bit uh, concerned. One of their clients had signed on one billion dollars with a b of debt this guy was just prominent and he had a lot of partners and you know blah blah blah. so they were a little concerned they were like well this guy i mean it's one billion dollar signer like this guy's a walk-in you know bankruptcy here um so they were they, were, they weren't sure how the lender was going to react in that particular case the lender actually reacted positively they said oh my gosh this guy must be really smart and really sophisticated he must be the best borrower ever <laughs> so that's one data point okay I had another data point, a guy in uh, San Antonio uh, was looking for a KP because he said his current KP was kind of maxed out. Basically, I think Freddie was saying, hey, dude, you've been on half of the deals in San Antonio for the past year. Like, you're the king of San Antonio. Like, we get it. It's fine. Uh, you need to slow down or go to Dallas. Like, we don't, why don't we slow down San Antonio exposure for you? So I've heard that before. And then, like in my own personal situation, we had a deal in San Antonio with with Wells Fargo being the uh, the lender, and that you know they overlay their own requirements on top of Fannie and Freddie. It just gets complicated. So it's case by case. But I really like that story about the first one where somebody had signed on a billion dollars, and they said, "That's great. This guy must be super qualified." Yeah, that's what that's we where you want to be. That's where you want to be. Uh, and then uh, the other question is. So Fannie and Freddie loans, and right now most of the deal flow out there is bridge debt. You know, it, it's hard to get into this, the agency. But with Fannie and Freddie loans, I've heard that you have to have a signer that signed on one of those loans for the past like 
five years or so. Have you heard that? And uh, have you signed on any Fannie Freddie loans? Just- yeah, I'm in process. I'm in process with a couple. Um, yes, there's more stringent requirements. Um, like Wells Fargo in that case, they actually said, hey, Ethan, that's great that you love life insurance policies. Uh, we don't. We're giving you zero value. So go withdraw all the money or borrow it all out. Then we'll give you credit for liquidity. And okay. I said, uh, Wells Fargo, respectively, respectfully, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's cash there. And that, that could be it's straight up cash. Yeah. That right. could be a whole nother podcast if you want to go into it later. All right. Shifting gears to uh, gap funding. Uh, talk to us about gap funding, why you're passionate about it, and you know how you can help people. Yeah, absolutely. So gap funding to me really, let me define the scenario and then let me just start with a general statement. So gap funding is kind of like a perfect uh, investment strategy for me. I don't think it would work for 99% of people for a variety of different reasons. So number one, I come from the corporate, uh, you know, high-end legal services world where we're used to dropping everything we're doing to work on an emergency and work on it really well and get it done over a weekend or over a day. So you, you have to be comfortable with always being in closing mode. Most people, you know, are not okay, you know, running a two minute drill every five seconds, right? They're, they're just not built that way. Or they, they can't play, you know, full, full court press the whole game. Uh, I'm built that way because of my prior experience. And, you know, truthfully, I do have a relatively flexible schedule. Um, it's not the most flexible, but it's definitely more flexible than most people's schedules. <laughs> Number two, I'm a corporate lawyer, so I can do all the paperwork myself, basically, and I can do it pretty fast and pretty well. And then just in general, like I said, you know, with life insurance policies and stuff, I, I usually keep a pretty high percentage of my net worth liquid to be a loan guarantor and just as my overall business strategy you know i like to have a large amount of reserves um it's just it's just something i've always done and so um gap gap lending kind of i did my first one in multifamily last july and then i reflected upon all the transactions i've done in the past and there were three or four more that i've done years ago that were basically the same thing i just didn't really know it was gap funding so let me set up the scenario for you in, in July. Here's what happened. Somebody that I met at a networking event remembered that I keep lots of money in my life insurance policies because I signed as a loan guarantor. Uh, he said, hey, Ethan, I got this friend. Uh, she needs $2 million. She needs to close uh, Friday. So this was like on a Monday, he called me. He said, hey, she got four days. Uh, she can't get an extension. It's like non-negotiable. The seller has a 1031. So it's not like the seller is being an asshole. He just literally cannot. Uh, she's in a really tough spot. She's raised eight out of the $10 million she needs. She's short $2 million. You know, Ethan, I know you have the money. You've told me that before for a loan guarantor. Would you lend it to her? And I said, dude, that, that's not what I do. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to meet her. Maybe there's a creative way. Um, met her. Uh, she was really impressive, very experienced syndicator. Um, you know, personality-wise, uh, she's one of the personalities that I can fit with pretty well. And so basically, we we lend her the money, and then uh, she paid us off over the next six months with post-closing fundraising. Mm-hmm. And as part of uh, that loan, we got general partnership interests in her deal. So we're the proud owner of like 945 percentage of the general partnership on a deal in a state that's not texas yeah. um i will not be going to the state 
I will most likely not be keeping up with what's going on with it. And uh, hopefully in three to seven years, I'll get a check for, for doing that. So you're, you're getting the upfront, uh, I would assume, interest that you've negotiated with her. And then yep. you'll have the upside at sale as Correct. well. So it's, you know, it's a benefit, obviously, uh, for both parties, for sure. Correct. Um, so it's a, it's a special situations loan. So I'm always interested in anything that's a short-term loan, which I define as usually four months or less. But if there's partial payments made along the way, I'm more than happy to just extend the loan. Um, now, if you come out and you say, hey, yeah, it's going to take me like five years to raise the additional money to pay you off. I mean, in that case, I might as well just be an investor in the deal and just wait the whole time. That's not really part of my strategy. So I'm interested in any situation where it's a short term payback with a strategy that makes sense. So post closing fundraising makes sense. Um, going to Las Vegas and uh, betting on the Chiefs, uh, even though they're favored to win, I don't think that makes sense to me. Yeah. Now, if you already have a lottery ticket that you've already won and you just need to go to Las Vegas to cash it in, now that's starting to make more sense, right? Sure. So the strategy has to make sense in the yeah. repayment. Well, and if she's able to raise eight out of the 10 million, the likelihood is that she can you know, raise the remaining, just needs more time. Or add partners. Um, That's literally the heuristic we use. So yeah. we prefer if you've raised eighty percent, because if you hit eighty percent, we're really confident you can raise the last piece. You sure. just need more time. Now, if you go down, you know, seventy, sixty, that's probably still okay. Now, if you go fifty, now we're starting to not be sure. If you're like, you know, some people call me and they say, "Hey, Ethan, can you lend me ninety-five percent of the capital stack?" I've raised five, and I say, "Cool story, bro." Uh, not our fact pattern. Not a fact pattern. And then, so again, similar to KPN, you're looking at the team. Are you looking at all the property or the state or anything about it? Yes. Okay. So we underwrite the deal, but but we underwrite a basically like a limited partner. Um, we just make sure that it looks like it makes sense. So if it, the IRR is, you know, 10 to 20%, the multiple of invested capitals, you know, 1.7 to 2.2%. You know, as long as it's within those regular bands, we're okay. If it's outside the regular bands, but in a positive way, we want to check it out a little bit more to make sure there's not too much puffery or not something weird going on. And if it's too low, then we're just really honest and we just tell them, you should probably get a real job. You're not very good at real estate investments because everybody else is like here, like, you know, 12 to 22 IRR, you're like at four. Like just go, just go get a job as a lawyer or something. Yeah, people, um, people do want an upside on their investment for sure. Exactly. Yeah, people are not interested <laughs> about a four percent IRR win. Yeah, not with the amount of risk and the amount of work being taken. So again, it's it's an underwriting of the team. Um, and then what we do is we ask for a two times collateral coverage ratio. So we're not in the business of making unsecured loans, but we can be creative in terms of what collateral you can pledge. So like in your case, Wayne, um, most people in real estate, or I shouldn't have singled you out, but most people who are professionally in real estate don't really have other assets other than real estate. Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys, they'll have a very high net worth with a relatively low liquidity amount. But what they'll have is they'll have, you know, 30% of a GP on 100 units or 40% of a GP on 200 units or 10% of a GP on 50 units. So we'll take those as collateral. So we'll assign a value to what those things are generally worth. We'll we'll do a you know discount it by half, and we'll lend against those. Yeah. Is that perfect collateral? Absolutely not. 
but it's a creative way of getting some stuff done. Yeah. I think what you've always, and firsthand too, you've always been very creative and come in as a partner uh, to make, make it a win-win. So I think that's a, it's a good, good trait to have as you're looking for people um, as well, but people are looking like for people like you uh, to fill those gaps, but also just be a genuinely good person and, and make it a win-win. Yeah. So I'm, like, the- yeah I'm, I'm super consistent. Like I was telling you at the beginning of this. So I met my wife when I was 16. If we started playing chess we or even checkers, we probably just play three times and then you're going to know all of my moves. Like I don't, I don't really have moves. I'm just a super consistent um, person. So it, you know, I just literally say what I'm going to do and I do what I'm going to say. Like literally when people tell me they're going to call me tomorrow and they don't, like I actually remember that and, and I start moving them down my list. Yep. And then if they do that multiple times, like they, they move to a portion that's that's no longer uh, like super interesting to me anymore. Um, so, so you know, pe- people have, I think generally, uh, most people only tell me positively. They don't usually tell me negative. So, so I have a little bit of a feedback bias here. Uh, um, you know, there's no like online marketplace where they can post negative reviews, but a lot of people have appreciated the fact that I just literally tell them within five minutes, more or less, like, here's what I can do. And then here's what I think I can do within this amount of time, right? There's none so- of this puffery, like, oh, yeah, I think I can do that. Or can you like, it's just like, hey, this is what I think we can do. We got a deal or not. Yeah, that's huge, too, because you're not having to beat around the bush. Like, this is what you can offer. And if it works uh, to fill that gap for you, then um, that's great. So what asset classes other than multifamily? You mentioned industrial. Are there any others, uh, other asset classes or all the asset classes and all spectrums or do you have a pretty narrow focus from a gap lending standpoint? No. So gap lending, because my network is so real estate focused, because I've been in real estate for nine years, uh, 90 plus percent of my deals are real estate related. And then another 90 plus percent of that is real is multifamily syndication. Mm-hmm. But that's just because of my network. So I like to make this joke. I'm not sure if everybody gets it or if everybody likes it, but I just care about short-term loan where it's worth it for my borrower to pay me a very high rate and their repayment strategy makes sense. So I like to make this joke. Like if you've got a short-term loan need and you're shipping horse manure to Uganda and you've got to wait 90 days to get paid by the government of Uganda and they're a great credit risk, I'm now interested in horse manure in Uganda. Yeah. Uh, if you're making drones to send to Ukraine and uh, Raytheon's going to buy it from you, but you know th- they have to do this and that and this and that, I'm now interested in drones in Ukraine. No, it's just that work tends to be you know real estate and multifamily driven, so almost everything I do is that. But this is just called special situations investing uh, writ large. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm it's it's applicable to almost any situation as long as you know there's a short term need, an acute short term need for money fast and a repayment strategy that actually makes sense and can be accomplished with a fast payback. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot, uh, both on the key principal side and gap funding. Anything else you want to talk about with any of those spectrums that we didn't cover? No, I think that gives people a good, uh, good uh, overview of all that stuff. Like with gap funding, you know, a lot of my friends, sometimes they, uh, you know, talk about me on LinkedIn and stuff. So, so really um, a lot of situations where somebody has a lot to lose by not closing. So like for the example on that deal, the first one I talked about in July when I lent 2 million bucks, um, if she didn't close her deal, she would have had to return $8 million to investors. 
Uh, I don't really care who you are or how experienced you are. If these people wired you money two months ago and then you're giving them the money back and like you just tell them, hey, I couldn't get it done, you look terrible. Yeah. Uh, she's in that specific market all the time. So she would have looked bad to the seller and the brokers. Um, and then she wouldn't have made her acquisition fee, her carry, any of that stuff. Right. So the gap funding, I really want people to think about it, not necessarily as a just, you know, short, you know, like a super high interest rate loan. Um, it's really a tool to 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 move that needle from yes, from no to yes. Right. So it helps you accomplish that. And if that's worth it to you, then it's worth doing it. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. That's a really great way of saying it, Ethan. Uh, so I prepped you before the podcast, so I'll ask it sort of how we close up all of our podcasts. But what's one of your most proudest moments, whether it's in real estate investing or just in general? Uh, in general, I have to say my five kids. Um, they're not my proudest moment, any specific moment in time, but uh, collectively over a long period of time. Uh, yeah. They're, they're really good kids. Um, when I met my wife, I knew that she would want to be a professional mother. Like literally when I met her, I knew that she was going to be super into, into our kids and stuff. Um, she was never the type that was super career focused. Um, I mean, she did well in her career, but it wasn't because she wanted to be the CEO or something or a senior vice president. It was more just like, oh, you know, this is what smart people and, you know, hardworking people do to, to, to have a good job. Right. right. But I, but I knew it, you know, once we started having kids, she would just want to focus on that. And that's what she does. She runs, she runs our kids like an investment bank. So my kids are out like 7am in the morning and they come home at midnight and their day's filled with activities. Like if they're not doing something productive, she's like, why are you not doing something productive? Yeah. Well, and just following you on Facebook too, the travel and the, the amount of miles and hikes and stuff that she goes on with those kids. It's pretty, pretty amazing. No, she, she runs it pretty intensely. Like I, I would not want to be my kid. Like I, <laughs> I just like to chill. Um, I'm not an introvert, but like, I don't mind a lot of alone time and just like sitting and watching the TV or football time. Like I need to be doing something else while I do that. Like usually reading some articles or, or surfing something or, or doing some light administrative work um, or light legal work. But, uh, you know, she's, my wife is very intense about things. Well, Ethan, thanks for your time today and uh, sharing your knowledge. And how can people reach out to you? Yeah, so the best way to reach out to me is just my email address, which is Ethan Gao, E-T-H-A-N-G-A-O at gmail.com. Uh, I usually reply pretty quick unless I'm in a meeting or on a call. Um, and if you haven't heard from me in about 24 hours, you're going to need to call the police. Something happened to me. All right, Ethan. Well, you have a great rest of the day. And thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this episode. We hope you subscribe, share, and leave a review of the show. For more information about passively investing in multifamily apartments, check out Wayne's free ebook by going to creipartners.com forward slash ebook. Also, follow us on Facebook by searching CREI Partners. This was the untold stories of real estate investing.